When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called Oh No He Didn't and today's theme is pantomimes. Oh, one quick thing by the way, if you are listening to these in chronological order, you will notice that today's episode isn't with Deborah Meaden, as we promised you it would be, but fear not, Deborah is still a-coming. Uh, you'll be able to hear her brilliant episode in January, so there's a little New Year's treat for you to look forward to. And do please remember to rate, review and recommend the show, it all helps people to find us. So, back to pantomimes. I love a good pantomime. I remember my parents taking me to Cinderella when I was, I guess, about three or four, and Buttons brought me onto the stage. And at the end, I wasn't quite sure how to get down, and I just stood there crying, and my dad had to come and get me. I do remember wetting myself up there too, but I'm told that bit did not happen. It probably would now. Pantomime has its roots in the 16th century Italian Commedia dell'arte, and by the 18th century, Commedia characters had started to appear on London stages with music but no speech, and these were the earliest pantomimes. The term slapstick comes from performances where a harlequin used a wooden bat to change the stage scenery by knocking down a series of hinged flaps. That sounds like my dog chasing my cat out of the cat flap. And by the late 19th century, the most extravagant productions at the largest London theatres could last up to five hours. Jesus, that's like watching all of the Irishmen. I hear you, but my camera is... Huh. That's today's guest, Deliso Chaponda, who, as you will hear, has starred against his better judgment in the pantomime Aladdin. Aladdin began its existence as a pantomime at Covent Garden in 1788, but not in the form that we would recognise today. A few decades later, in 1830, there was a performance of Aladdin that took place almost entirely on horseback with a mock tiger hunt. You don't get that at the Hackney Empire in 2022. Widow Twanky first appeared in Aladdin in 1861 and was named after a popular green tea. Ooh, I love a green tea. And that was the year when Aladdin, or the wonderful scamp, 
was first performed at the Strand Theatre and from this version all the modern Aladdins are descended. And a last couple of random pantomime facts that I like. It's panto custom that the fairy always enters from stage right and the baddie from stage left, a tradition which evolved from the superstition of right signifying heaven and left hell. And theatre superstition also dictates that the very last lines of the pantomime should never be uttered until the opening night. It's considered bad luck if they are ever spoken during rehearsals and probably quite bad luck for the audience on the first finale if they have to watch it and that's the first time they've been uttered. Gosh, that sentence was hardly English from me. Apologies. I think mine, I got to press a button now. It's there on. you go. It has, uh... Deliso Chaponda is a writer and comedian who shot to fame on Britain's Got Talent, making it to the final of the 2017 series and establishing himself a firm favourite with the judges and the British public alike. He quickly became a Facebook and YouTube star, amassing over 300 million views of his performances to date. He's since been seen and heard on the Royal Variety performance, QI, The Apprentice You're Fired, The News Quiz and The Now Show. Deliso is also the writer, creator and host of the Rose Door nominated BBC Radio 4 show, Citizen of Nowhere, which you haven't listened to that do, it's absolutely brilliant. And he's performed around the world and is currently on tour with his amazing show, Apocalypse Not Now, for which there's a link in the show notes. Deliso and I talked about pantomime, radio, Britain's Got Talent, I'm a Celebrity, our friends Sean Walsh and Babatunde, who were still in the jungle at the time of recording, and sadly, by the time you hear this, are not, being Malawian, money, fame, education, apartheid, protest and growing up. But I started by asking him how his tour's going. As you will hear, he was recording from a couple of different rooms in a hotel. Post-pandemic, I literally said, say yes to everything. That's interesting, because lots of people are starting to say no. Lots of people are thinking, like, oh, I'm not travelling up and down the country for 200 quid anymore, and I've revised my wish to do this 24-7. You've come the other way. They may have been the wise ones, but I literally was like, I have to refill the coffers. So I did everything. I did a panto for the first time. I'm doing cruise ships. I'm, I'm just, like, literally doing six or seven days a week just to get back and then I'm going to start easing off once I've got back the truck up I've never had anyone on the podcast who's done panto and I'm fascinated after years (laughs) of taking my children to them um which I should know this if I'd done my research properly which panto did you do I did Aladdin I did Aladdin and I played wishy-washy who's like the sort of comic relief the best character to play in Aladdin (laughs) and where was it where did you play it so this was Red Hill Red Hill. This is fantastic. I feel we could get the whole podcast just out of this. So how was it doing that? <laughs> it was good, but it was also like slow torture because they were trying to make up for not doing it for two years. We were doing three shows a day. Oh, my God. Right? And how long were the shows? So two or three. And they're like an hour and a half, uh-huh. right? Uh, hour and a half to two hours. Yeah. And, oh, I've just realized there are people in here now. Is that a problem? 
Hello, podcast pedants. It's producer Mike here with another handy clarification. During the interview, Deliso was forced to relocate numerous times, so we pick up with him in a secret location. I am in some kind of soulless conference room. Hey, it's listen to. It's good to know you're a celebrity, right? When you're shunted around <laughs> into a cupboard, they're like, "You have a cupboard. We'll let a businessman from Stockport take the nice room." And, exactly. And you sit there. Now, I wonder, Delisa, if you were in a flashy suit looking like you were a multimillionaire, they'd have let you keep that room and they'd have made the other guy leave. Entirely true. Entirely true. Okay, here we go. Let me plug in and then we're good to go. They need not to underestimate the power of Delisa. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) They're not going to end well that they did this to you. Okay, we've got you. I'm not sure the Wi Fi is great in there. Let's have a look. You've ah, there we go. So is the, that seems is okay that? now? Yeah, that seems okay. Yes. Okay. Good. Amazing. Good, good, don't, good. don't move. Don't breathe. Don't move. Keep I, here. I think we've got this down. <laughs> so you left me on a cliffhanger. You were telling me that you were doing two to three shows a day in Panto. Yes, so we need to I get back doing... into wishy washy mentality. Wishy washy mentality. I'd been offered many pantos uh, from 2017 until uh, this year. I'd always said no uh, because I'd rather do stand-up. But I now needed to refill the coffers. Pantos pay well, so I said yes. But it's so many shows, two or three shows, and you're in like a really weird Groundhog's Day because you can't leave the theater because you do a matinee and there's two hours before the next show. So you just sit in the dressing room. Then you do the next show. Then you you sit for another two hours Then you do the next show. So you live and breathe and exist just the panto, just the multicolored weird outfit and running around with people doing dancing with pop songs and you're doing Christmas cracker level jokes. Oh, it was fun at the, for the first week. And then for the next two weeks, it's like a slow and steady torture. So you do three (laughs) weeks is the run. Yes, I did three weeks. And there's some people who do longer. And I was like, I don't know how you don't snap. I know. Some of them seem to go for like six weeks. I feel like it's almost panto season now in some people's. Yes. Yes. And it's actually a month because you do one week of rehearsals and then three weeks of performances. So that's what I did. Do you like children? I do like children, but like. Not by week three. No, also, I like, like like five children, not 200 screaming at you. I think even five <laughs> is at least three more than I like. So. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I did it just so that I can say I did it. And I've, I've, I've got an idea for a play now, which would be backstage uh, at a panto, right? And it's in one of the dressing rooms. And it's just all the stuff that you find out everything that's going on by these people zipping in and out and changing outfits and someone gets murdered. And or, or, or I, I thought of a play while doing it. <laughs> that's great. I could also I was going to say I could see that as a radio play. I obviously couldn't see it if it was a radio play, but um, that would actually work quite well. Um, that would work in quite an audio well, form. And you're very much the love of Radio 4, Deliso. So I'm sure that if you just pick up the phone, they'll be like, sure, what is it? We'll take <laughs> actually, it. Interestingly, my radio stand-up is my favourite stand-up. Is it? Because you can kind of let stuff breathe, right? In that, in a club, I've seconds, you need a laugh. It's like, bam, bam, bam. 
and also people have a short attention span while on the radio you can really like delve into a subject for like 10 15 minutes and there can be a laugh after two minutes but it's like a big laugh and i just i just love the pace of it so you on your third series of citizen of nowhere on radio four we've done three and i'm writing four which will be recorded early next year I'm very jealous. What wouldn't I give for a series on Radio 4? You've earned it, my friend. And it's I was I did the Now show, which I know you've done as well a couple of weeks ago. And I actually everyone said, oh, it's going to be really hard. And the Radio 4 audiences don't give much. But I also loved the fact that it was I loved writing for quite a specific demographic. So you're not trying to do a one size fits all. This is going to get a laugh after 15 seconds. So I really like the challenge of that. Um, but I also absolutely loved the delivery of it. I really enjoyed it. I, 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 maybe I'm just a boring old person who wants to stand in a safe place with a very gentle audience. But there was something about, yeah, everyone said it won't be fun. And I did it. Um, who else was on? Emmanuel Sanubi was on and he's an incredible stand up and he did brilliantly, but he didn't enjoy the process. You wouldn't know that because he was superb, but I loved it. So do you? Oh, I it? love yeah. it. I love it. And I think it's that thing of, you just find the audience that likes you and you like performing to. And that, that audience works for me. It's funny because I, you and I have only worked together two or three times, I think. And we did a showcase together for a corporate um, booker. Oh, yes. Very soon after you'd done Britain's Got Talent. Or, yes. And Jeff Norcott was on and he'd just done Live at the Apollo. And I think both of you were a bit like, how much of that are we doing here? And, and what do these people want to see? Whereas I felt very yes. comfortable in a corporate uh, audience because that's where I come from. But the when you, I, I careful how I phrase this because it's meant it is meant as a compliment. When you yes. see you on Britain's Got Talent and that amazing first televised audition, it's easy to underestimate your intellect and your brilliance in terms of your mind and think you're a really gifted comic and you're incredibly likable. So there are huge positive things which got you to the final of Britain's Got Talent. But there's a hell of a lot more to you, which you get a sense of when you talk to you like this and you get a sense of through your Radio 4 show. So did it feel like the version of you that was on Britain's Got Talent, which I guess was the kind of one size fits all, just make well, these well make these people laugh? Well, it's me. It, it's definitely me. But that was me, which has been through a um, a gauntlet of comedy clubs for 10 years. Like, so you so were 10 years, because you started in 2001. Yes, but I started in Canada and yeah. then I was in the U.S. and I was just doing like, you know, the jongleur's chain and like uh you know performing in to drunk people in blackpool and and literally i was doing at least four or five shows a week to just the broadest audience right if 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 we were shakespearean times i was performing to the groundlings every day so i found jokes which just worked across the board do you know what i mean like it was the sort of broad audience jokes. And when I auditioned from for BGT, I literally was like, I need to do the best of my broad audience jokes because it's whoever tunes in. It couldn't be broader, could it? And kids and people who are yes. not comedy fans and you yeah. don't know in terms of politics, intellect, upbringing, education, what references are going to work. So you've just got to go for the thing that works. Did you, um, watching that first, I watched it back before I interviewed you um, for this, 
And it's it was so magical watching that. And you did seem, um, I mean, your, your charm is partly that you seem so kind of wide-eyed and wouldn't hurt a fly and, and a sweetheart, which I, from what I know of you, is not fake, you know, that you are a lovely guy. But there was something so magical about that. I could see why the whole audience sort of fell in love with you. How did it feel having it all was, those people falling in love with you live? It was amazing because I... I was like grinning and I, because I had watched people on it. I'd watched people like, you know, the boy with tape on his face on it. And in the States, I, on the American in the version, States, yeah. right. And so I'd watched them. And then when you're walking on, you're looking out at the judges and it's like what I see on my little screen. And now I'm in front of it. And I was just having a ball of a time. That was the thing was I was, I went with such low expectations. I just wanted to get like a nice corporate video. Um, I wasn't thinking about getting through. I was just like, oh, if I get a nice professional video on it, it'll help me be the, you know, the comedy host of the Workboat Association or something like that. Right. And literally the buzzer and everything was totally by surprise. So it was an actual Cinderella moment because I didn't see it coming at all. So it was wonderful. Did you know, I think you have a very good sense within 30 seconds of starting any particular gig, whether you, whether it's all right or not. And did you have a set, you seem to just relax into it pretty quickly. They didn't even air the bits which were the, where I realized it was going well. Because okay. I understand why they edited it that way. Because the buzzer came from Amanda Holden, they needed the funniest banter to be with her. But when I came out, I had some funny banter with Simon and I had some funny banter with David Williams before I'd done any jokes. And that was when I, people were laughing. And then then I started and I knew immediately because, again, there was a huge crowd there. And that was made me feel safe, weirdly, because if it was just me and the judges, I'd be so nervous. I'd hate it if it was like the X Factor where it's just you and them. But because there's like, you know. 800 people in the room who are finding me funny it didn't matter what was happening I was very safe I think also as stand-ups there's something so unnatural about trying to do stand-up just for judges because obviously we're all about riding the energy of the audience very much true very much true also I don't know if they aired it but they started cheering I don't know what they 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 cheered them into giving me the buzzer they did the crowd yeah, yeah exactly i couldn't hear what like, they were saying i was like it was something <laughs> like push it push it i yeah. know exactly what it, it, press that dong press that dog i didn't know what they were saying and then i was like <laughs> normally when 800 people are looking at you screaming it's a time to leave <laughs> it's a bad thing it's a bad <laughs> get thing get away and did you I'll when... actually admit like it's it's i'm almost ashamed of it but if i'm having a bad day all i need to do is watch that video it's like man, i feel better i love it <laughs> well you that is hard one that is yours to yes. your grave to watch and does it when you've got that feeling and um, we sometimes get it as stand-ups where you know the whole room really loves you i know there are comics like the brilliant sean walsh who when we're recording this is in the jungle and by the time this goes out we'll know if he won oh, or not and I'm exactly. so hoping he does I don't know what your Sean <laughs> yeah. Walsh opinion is 
Oh no, I love Sean. I love Sean, and I also love Baba Tunde. So I love I, I, Baba too. Like, I know. Just comedy, team comedy. I've not been the rest glued of to it this year, and I love it with Sean, <laughs> especially because it's such a much deserved rehabilitation much deserved. after Strictly. Yes. But yes, yes. Um, going back to your amazing moment on a TV show, not Sean Walsh's. Yes. Um, so that moment, I know I, the reason I mentioned Sean is he's a comedian who does seem to get a lot of standing ovations. So yes. not because he he's not a dick and he boasts about it, but you, I know he does. So yes. he gets that a lot. I don't know if you get that a lot I've had it once so but to get it in that in that environment where the judges got up the audience got up did I would have started crying it was amazing Uh, and also like the the act before me had been atrocious that helps doesn't it 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 did help so it was literally they're like oh god what's next what's next and and so oh it was it was really great and I, I I think it was luck plus years of of uh, of performing, but also uh, a confluence of circumstances. Because I remember thinking, if the person before me had sung a song and everyone had cried, I wouldn't have done that well. It's because I was before me was an atrocious, kind of unintentionally funny act that it was the perfect lead up to me. So you think if you'd been following Susan Boyle? history would be very different. Yes, I think I couldn't have followed her. And I actually think comedy can't follow sincerity and like people crying and that, like the worst thing that can happen when you do like a corporate show for like a charity is they play a sad video. Oh, it's the worst, yeah, and you're supposed to come on. There's nothing you can do. I did one for WaterAid. And it, I told them no death, no sad videos. And I didn't realize just as bad is if it's just a thing about the good stuff they've done, but showing all this suffering. Oh, you feel so trite coming afterwards. Yeah, no, for sure. I um, I was doing a corporate when the Queen died and I went and did my tech check. And then I was backstage changing into my nice dress. And then they came in and said, um, the Queen's died. I was doing an after dinner speech and they said, so we're going to still have the dinner, but it'll be very different tone. And then if you could adjust what you're going to say after dinner. And I just How said, I said, it? I cannot, I cannot, there's nothing I can say. Yeah. And also my position, it's not even, even if I were to declare my real position on the matter, that's going to, not everyone's going to agree with that either because everyone yeah. will ever do so. So that was bad. Um, I think if you had to go on after that had happened, uh, that would have also not meant you got through. But did you, um, so you went on, do you think they curate it? I mean, I, I've worked on reality shows on the other side they, of the camera. They, cur- they curate the order. They sort of, they're trying to manufacture. Yes. They loved they cur- you obviously and wanted you to do well. Exactly. So they curate the order. And they they give you advice about the jokes you do, but you can just do whatever jokes you want. So I had I had some suggestions of things I shouldn't say. Oh no, not not for the first one, but for the semi-final. I had suggestions, but I ignored most of the suggestions because I was like, I perform in front of a crowd every week, so I know what works. But they do try to sort of puppet master it a bit, but then at the end of the day, when you're on stage, um, something else happens because like there was a lady who was on Meyer, who a lot of people felt was being groomed to do well. And then she panicked on stage and did terribly. And does it change? Because from the from the first one where your expectations were low through to realising that you were being backed as a, as a serious contender to win, 
that oh yeah that must have been a because as a comedian we're, we're it's a bit of it's like alchemy isn't it what goes on in our head and a little tiny drop of a different substance and we're screwed audition was zero pressure and then the semi-final i was convinced that i wasn't going to get through so i literally burnt everything i did all my best jokes put in all my energy and i was like i'm gonna go out in style and then i got to the final <laughs> and, and then you had to was, write a brand new five presumably and i was scrambling through now the b material because i had just done all my a list and i was trying to cobble together a a set and they said no to some of my best jokes which are oh, i will say the only bit which i didn't enjoy was the final because that was a fight that was a fight also they were arguing with me over jokes because now they realized i could win while earlier they were just saying yeah just say whatever you want so did you have to edit out anything you were very much attached to for the final? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So there was a Theresa May joke, which had to go because they liked it. And then they announced an election. Yeah, shit. As if so that wasn't like, hard enough on a lot of other levels. Exactly. So that had to go. And then also there was a joke, which is, I think, still think one of my best jokes about an exorcism, which they thought would upset like religious people and i was telling them i've done it in churches i've done it in front of reverends i've done it all over. it's never offended anyone but they were really f afraid of that one and so they refused that so those were the two that was a big issue and that is a big issue when you because do you do you record five on the night how long is the set actually when you perform it yes so the semi-final and the final are live so it's um of course so you're doing what we see you're doing exactly exactly and so it, oh, it was a lot of stress, but actually I'm so amazed that I ended up doing well because I don't like how my final went, but I think years of repetition mean that even when we do what we consider like a C performance, it's still funny because we've done it so many times. We have enough muscle memory. I do think it's like, you know, I'm a runner and if I haven't run for a few weeks, I think, oh, I can't run anymore. And then you just get out. You're like, my body still knows how to do it because I've done it for years. And I do think with yes. stand up, sometimes I was talking to Hal Cruttenden about this. That he was a guest on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And I was saying that I find the easiest bit once I'm on there, something just clicks into place virtually always. But often on the way there or waiting to go on, I'm like, ah, oh, this is going to be the one where I really fuck up. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I always say hey, I need one laugh and then I become me. So my brain is doing hundreds of things and I'm stressed and then one laugh and oh, oh yes, that's me and I'm fine. Do you find that being... But then also, also actually I would say, but that's also true, like whatever's going on in my life, right? I remember in Canada, um, I was having immigration problems, which were extremely stressful but I'd go to a comedy club, I'd get on stage, one joke in, I'd get a laugh, I'd forget about every other problem, and I'm fine for that 20 minutes. Namaste, motherfuckers! Do you think it's about having to be so present, though? Because I, it, when I, I, in the beginning, when you start stand-up, you know, you know what goes wrong. Like, I didn't have the jokes, I didn't have the stagecraft, it's really easy to know what you didn't do right. And as you get better at it, the difference between an amazing gig and a not great one is quite hard to pin down, even when you reflect on it. And I sometimes think it's when I didn't fully turn up and be present and when I wasn't completely in the room. And as soon as you have a bit of you that's not just inhabiting it, I know this makes me sound like a right wanker but, and overthinking it, but as soon as you're not actually in the room, they know. 
Oh, it's true though. I, I think no, I don't think that's wanker. I think that's entirely true. It's it's people can tell. It's also like you don't realize what you're being slightly not there is doing to your body language, to your delivery. And I can always see it when a comedian has sort of pressed play in their brain and they're just rattling it off without really being in the room and reacting to things. Oh, no, no, 100%. And that's the difference between it was okay and it was amazing. I think it's exactly that. And it's the advice you have. I remember the night before I just did, um, hasn't gone out yet, but I recorded the Christmas Apollo and I was so sure I was an imposter and I shouldn't be doing it. And I worked so, so hard to get it and then on my set for it. And then Justin Morehouse sent me some really lovely advice the night before. And it was so it was so lovely. And it was mainly about turning up in the room and being there and letting the laughs come in and letting the material breathe and smiling. And I just thought, yeah, actually, I've got the material now. If I haven't got it the night before, I really am screwed. So let's assume I know what I'm doing content wise. And then all of it's about how you turn up, isn't it? And how you deliver it. Yes. And also, oh, I'll tell you another one. It's like wardrobe. I did, when I did the Royal Variety, my shirt. Let's just slip I, that in for a minute. You know, the gig we all want <laughs> to get. That's, ama that's amazing that no, you did that. No, but I'll tell you what was funny, though, is because it was during COVID, there were no, we didn't have, uh, like, wardrobe people, right? Um, there was someone there, but it wasn't, like, the same as usual. So I have a shirt which keeps popping out. <laughs> and I know no one else notices this. But I can't watch it without being like, oh, I keep <laughs> I keep fighting with my my collar, and now I'm pushing the not collar the sleeves keep falling out over my arm. Ah, ah, it's like it's like slow torture. I'm so glad I did it. But in my head, I was like, if I could go in a time machine, I would just hand myself a shirt which fits. And if there's one audience who aren't going to be sympathetic to the fact your shirt doesn't fit, it's going to be the royals who exactly. will have had butlers and exactly. they've never had this problem. They'll be looking at you going, why is this even happening? Is this a thing? <laughs> at least yeah. you didn't have the um, the thing I found during lockdown was the um, was obviously no wardrobe, which I was I was OK with, Elisa, because I can iron and I know how to make a sleeve fit. But I did not like the no makeup, which I guess is a little bit easier for men. And it really upset me that they were trying to say to me, a 53-year-old woman, could you go on television without anyone doing your makeup? I was like, I don't know if I can. I, oh, ended, up, I ended up being very, got very good at doing my own makeup. Oh, it makes a difference. And I'll tell you an interesting thing also is that because generally, and I've got, I'm, I'm of course generalizing, but because a lot of the makeup people aren't used to doing black skin, right? I often find that I would look at myself and I look one way and then I would do a show in South Africa and I'd be like, I look so much better. And it's because the lighting and the people who are doing the makeup are used oh. to dark skin. So then that's one way. Well, another way in which as a white person with ginger, with a, as a white woman with red hair, they fucking love doing my makeup, Delisa. They always make me, I think I've got the opposite. I think people meet me in real life and they're like, oh shit, that's a disappointment. <laughs> you look like you've had a really tough paper round. Whereas on telly, everyone's like, you look amazing. I'm like, yeah, because seven people <laughs> made me look like that. I and get a lot of, oh, you look taller on television. And I'm like, it's, it's television. 
it's the size of whatever your screen is. Exactly, exactly. What was I standing next to? Well, that's also <laughs> not what you want to hear, is it? I know it's like people say, yeah. you looked thinner on television. It's like, thanks a lot. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you the, the most denigrating one I get, which is actually quite funny, is I'll often have like young women approach me, ask for a selfie, and then they will panic and be like, oh, I, I'm not attracted to you. And I was oh, like, nice. I wasn't, going, I wasn't <laughs> going to hit on you. You just decided to preemptively reject me. It's very funny. <laughs> it's not the sort of thing you normally hear from strangers. People just walking up to you saying, I'm not attracted to you. It's like, thank you for clarifying. I um, I suspect I'm a hop and a skip of young men saying that to me when they take photos. Of me. Please don't, you know, don't think anything. Did you, um, you must be, I'm imagining in Malawi, you are a massive celebrity. Oh, Malawi, it's absurd. You like, must be like um, you must be like a Beyonce level or, or a Kardashian level of celebrity over in your home. When home I country. last when I was last in Malawi three months ago, um, I was picked up by the at the airport by a motorcade. Um, I met the president, right, to thank me for being an ambassador for Malawi. Literally, it's a different level. It's absolutely absurd. And then it's also, it's not how many people recognize me. It's how few people don't know who I am. But then at the same time, there's no culture of celebrity. So it's not like people approach me and are like, you know, falling over or anything. It's more like just they all know me like I'm their brother. So okay. they're just walking around and everyone's like, hey, Deliso, hey, Deliso, hey. They all know me, but it's not like they're very much impressed if i'm if i mean right it's not like jay-z walking down the street it's like everybody's brother walking down the street like they know you that must be a kind of a relief though because i've always thought having worked the other side of the camera with so many names who either were a-list when i worked with them or became a-list and i've seen what that fame does to people and so i think a lot of people who do what we do for a living are actually after fame. And I don't know what your relationship is with fame. I've always actively really thought being recognized everywhere would not at all be something I would want. But what's it like for you then? Because over oh, here, everybody must recognize you. I've got to say that I'm very shallow and I quite would like a lot of fame. <laughs> well, I applaud your honesty, Deliza. And you've got that. So for you, being recognized in the UK, I guess, by kids grannies everybody like you it's not like so yeah the uk it's probably three or four people a day recognize me because it's been a few years and i'm only on kind of niche stuff so three or four people a day more people recognize me from my voice probably because of the radio yeah but like when i'm in malawi where everyone recognizes me or where i'm in south africa where lots of people do I love it. I love the honesty love about it. that. I love so it. No end. Absolutely love it. <laughs> and, and bloody more power to your elbow and Red Hill. Everybody must be like wishy washy, and you must always just go there to do your shopping, even though it's miles away from where you live. <laughs> that was nice, though. I, I will say, kids liking you is a, a different kind. It's like a kind of pure honesty to how much they. There's no politeness in it. They'll just be like, you, I like you. And I had a, they always quote jokes to me. Little kids often remember the thou shalt not swap. And then the other one, which is interesting now, is people who were around 13 when I was on Britain's Got Talent, who are now just 17, 18, are, are so enthusiastic because they remember me from when they were like 
12, 13. Yeah, it's like nostalgia, but they were old enough to really enjoy. Yeah, you're thou shalt not swap. Anyone who will put a link to the routine, but anyone who hasn't seen it, that it was that's when you completely won the judges if you hadn't already. And is it because for you then I, I guess you had a very nomadic childhood, right? Yes. So when I was born, my family were refugees because uh, there was a dictator in power in Malawi. But then we went from refugees to being diplomats because my father got a job with the High Commission for Refugees, UN. So um, there's actually like a Christmas when you can see we go from hand-me-downs to new clothes because <laughs> you've got a, a nice job. But we were still now moving for a different reason. So I grew up in probably around 14 different countries, uh, just bouncing around. And interestingly, the UK is the longest I've been in one place. And has that been as an adult or did you have any of your upbringing in the UK? Oh, no, no. As an adult, as an adult. I moved here after university. So you went to university in Canada? Yes. And, and then after Canada... And that's where you I started stand-up, though, Canada, because that's, that's a great place start. to start. That's a good place to start stand-up if you might get one of your breaks on television. Yes. And it was because of just an open mic. And I used to do all kinds of open mics. I used to do poetry open mics. I used to do rap open mics and comedy. One, I was like, OK, I can try that. And it just turned out that that was what I had a gift for. And did you feel that that nomadic childhood? So you've gone in two different ways, I guess, geographically, you never quite stayed in one place. But also, much as you joke about going from hand-me-downs to new clothes, a shift in terms of income, lifestyle, status in society, it must have left you being quite discombobulated about where you belonged. Well, I think more so for my brothers, because I was young enough that I just took it in stride. Like I was Are you the, four, you're the baby of the family. I'm the youngest, mm. yes. So I was, the moving around and then the becoming more wealthy, I was too young to really understand it. And then it's only as I became older, I started looking at things and I was like, oh, this isn't normal. So some of the things is like, I don't speak lots of languages, but I speak little bits of many different languages. And that's the side of someone who's been moving like crazy. Also, there's an accent that it's quite hard to place where you grew up. It's it, You end up with that sort of international accent that, that you yes, recognize exactly. in people who've like, had that. Like Dan Schreiber has a sort of really hard to pin down accent because he moved so much. And there's that international kind of parlance. Yes, like armed forces kids and, and UN kids, we have the same sort of way of speaking. But it's actually been a boon in my comedy because I can perform everywhere because my accent is generally understandable everywhere. And did you have quite a privileged education then once your dad did get into the UN? And I know he's now a, a government. Is he still a government minister in Malawi? Yes, yes. He's Well, he's not a minister now. He's in opposition, but he's still uh, a politician. He's a politician. So you, you ended up, did you go to the international schools then or boarding schools? What, what was your yes. education? Yeah. I went to boarding schools. Um, I went first to like literally the Kenyan version of Eton. <laughs> like I went to like a, a posh British school in Kenya. And then I actually went to a, a school which changed my life, which was in Swaziland. It was one of these. It was a school set up for protest. It was a protest school set up to fight apartheid called Waterford Kamplaba. And it was education was on the curriculum, but so was protesting, writing lessons to letters to Amnesty International. It was very much like um, 
I, almost like an experimental school where they were trying to sort of educate your soul as well as your mind. And that literally actualized me. And it's very interesting when I look at the content of something like my radio show, and I'm like, wow, it worked. They made me have these values and be really concerned with social justice and stuff. And then when I meet other people who went to that school, they again, they're either working for a charity or working for the UN. And I was like, it actually works. You can, you can, I, I'll, I, this sounds like brainwashing, but like you can alter a person's values if from the ages 11 to 18, you immerse them in, um, you know, Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela and things like that. I was going to ask what age you were there. So it was secondary school. Secondary age. school, yes, yeah, secondary school. Excuse my ignorance for not knowing why this would be. I've been to Swaziland when it was still Swaziland, but what? Why was there a school like that? It seems like an anomaly. There would be that school with those values. Was it very much an outlier from main society, or was it representing a big movement that there was in the yes. Swazi people? So Eswatini, uh, as you uh, noted, it has changed its name, but it was Swaziland back then. Um, was is entirely surrounded by South Africa. So a bunch of South African teachers, white teachers who weren't allowed to teach interracially, decided to go into the neighboring country and start a school specifically to fight apartheid and be about integration and so on. And then it ended up getting a lot of funding it got um, what is uh, welcomed into a, a group of schools called the United World Colleges. And like when I was there, actually, the now King Charles was on the board of the um, of the United World Colleges. So there was a lot of sort of and also Queen Nora of Jordan. So there was a lot of people who were involved and raising money for it. And most kids won scholarships. Absolutely amazing school. So you must have had, I've heard you talk about the fact that you've been a kind of bystander to trouble, like you've been close to the action, but not in the action. But when you think about your upbringing, do you sometimes realise as you get older, I, I think you're 10 years younger than me, so you're not old, but as you get older, do you sometimes think, actually, do you know what, my life has actually been really fascinating and I've met these amazing people? I still can't think of it that way. I literally had a meeting with a, some people who wanted me to write a biography and I was like, but I've not done the dramatic stuff. Like, you know, my father's been through a lot and I've been like near refugee camps, but I wasn't in the refugee camp. You want the story of the person in the refugee camp. But you must have been close. I mean, did your dad, given the role he had and the number of countries you lived in, he must have been very close to the trouble. Oh, he was a, close to the trouble. He, you know, he's been in a house in a house that was bombed he's had all that stuff and what my point is that i've often had friends and family members going through really dramatic stuff but i myself generally haven't <laughs> well then you and need so, to lie about it and get the book deal delisa that's, that's what thing, you want the money thing. start to lie but i think it's also because you never see your life as dramatic as it is i'm working on a sitcom right now with uh, a, a writer in America. And it's really funny because when I told him, I keep telling him things about my life and he's like, that's got to be in it. And I'm like, but that's kind of boring. He's like, no, it's not. I think we don't see how interesting our own lives are. 
Or there are some people who think their lives are much more interesting than they are. Delisa, mostly the men I go on dates with. They just, I'm like, nah, not interesting. But <laughs> that's not writing off all men. Um, and did you? You talked about that school shaping your beliefs. And in, interestingly, my mum and dad always listen to the podcast. And the school I talk about going to a boys' boarding school when I was um, eight, from eight to thirteen, because that's when my parents worked. And it did shape me being a in a very in a minority, um, you know, gender wise. Been like a rock star. Well, no, I, no eight. No, I was. I oh, took, eight! You you probably bullied. I if was. It, if well, we were I was like twelve uh, and thirteen. It would have been. They could have would have lost their minds. No, they wouldn't, though, Delisa. Because look, at my ginger hair, as you know, I was very fat as a kid. I had glasses. And I had um, knock knees. Uh, so I, d- I was not ever going to be the poster girl. I only hit my stride as someone who looked okay in the world very late. <laughs> and talking about like well into my 30s. Um, until then, I was an ugly duckling. So I was an ugly duckling in that school. But um, much as gender-wise, that was difficult. Being a being teacher's kid is very difficult. But it was an incredible school and still is in terms of exactly the sort of things you've talked about, being a free thinker, debating, having a developing your own moral compass. And I often think that that is the bit of my education in terms of developing me as a human being that was so pivotal. I think it caused some other problems psychologically in other ways, but it really helped my intellect and my questioning about morality. So it sounds as if that school you went to in what was then Swaziland very much made you the man. 100%, 100%. Shape me. And what was lovely is during the pandemic, I did like a Zoom class on um creativity for the current students at that school and that felt like kind of full circle yeah how was that compared to amanda holden pressing the golden buzzer which was the <laughs> which gave you the most goosebumps i'll tell you the the golden buzzer obviously <laughs> i again i am like i am not not i'm the person who loves all of the attention loved all of it and to the point that if i was in a bad mood during the pandemic I would put on like my BGT jacket and go for a walk and hope someone recognized me. <laughs> I love it. I love the honesty. I love it. And do you, um, what do you believe in now then? So I'm religious. I, I, I believe in God. I, but I also believe um, that creativity is a form of prayer, right? It's, um, and so I write and I feel like writing is how I sort of give back but also it's what i was put here to do creation so i'm very um almost idealistic about creating comedy or writing fiction or whatever i may be doing it's very much what fulfills me and what i think i was meant to do does it just flow from you because it's quite a prolific output you've got you write you write fiction three radio four series another one on the way a huge amount of touring and content as a stand-up does it just come flow from you the writing on any other year i would say i just work every day but this has been a difficult year where um I'm just getting back into the groove of things after the two years has been harder than it used to be. So I would say for the first time, I'm overwhelmed and I don't know if I will hit deadlines. While usually I was always great at always hitting all the deadlines and always producing. It's quite hard to be. I think we're all in a slight PTSD. I know we have to be careful how we use that compared to some of the things people in the world go through. But I do think collectively 
we're just trying to put ourselves back together and work out how it is we function normally. Um, I think it was hard for us to process what we went through and those of us whose careers completely either died or changed or were put on pause to then just pick up what you used to do. It's like having been a marathon runner and then not being allowed to put your trainers on for a couple of years and then trying to go out running again. Yes, and I also think that there are things that, like things we didn't worry about, which gave you space to create, which now I have to worry about. So it makes it harder for it to just spill from my mind when I'm worrying about, oh, I've got to pay back that bounce back loan. Oh, I've got to worry about this. Oh, I've got to worry about that. And that I think I always took for granted that when I reached out, all the creativity would be ready to to be taken. And this year I've been like, oh, there's a bit more anxiety and stuff, but I'm I think I'm almost stabilizing. I think one year is what it took to stabilize. <laughs> I think if you've done that, you're a fast tracker in stabilization for sure. And did you, you've been honest about the fact that, you know, religion's important for you. Fame motivates you. And you said you're like, you're gigging like a motherfucker because you're, you you know, for the money as much as you did the panto for the money. How much is, how much is money a driver for you? Well, I'll tell you, I'm very bad with money. But I think people who are bad with money need to have it, right? Because <laughs> I always used to just work enough and have enough good projects going that there was always more refilling the tank, right? So I, I'm not motivated by money in that, like, I can pretty much survive as long as I've got something coming in. And I've often existed like a whole year, like, on vapors. But at the same time, you know... Um, I overwork so that I have money. I don't know if that sentence made any sense. It did. Do you think coming from no money has an impact? Because I think we we grew up not in poverty, but we didn't have loads of money. We weren't well off. And I I think I've always got this feeling of like, I I never take for granted I'll have enough money. I don't think any amount of money I would earn, I would ever think I've earned enough now. I always think, oh, no, you've really got to work hard and bring the money in. Don't take it for granted. Well, from the age 11 onwards, my family did have money. You were fucking loaded. So ignore that last sentence. (laughs) But it's interesting. But I think because my parents had used to be poor, we never lived like we were wealthy. Right. That's interesting. So it was it's it's one of those things. I always make jokes at my dad, like you had money, but you never let us act like we did. But it's because he always thought it would go. Um. Even though he was now working for the UN, he would buy the cheapest toilet paper and the cheapest milk and the cheapest orange juice. And I'm like, but what's the use of having money if you don't get the first class stuff? I'm with I'm with your dad, though. I think there's I, I definitely not that I'm maybe on the in the league of your dad's wealth. I don't know. But having had a you know successful boardroom career, I think my kids were always like, how much are we rich? Are we poor? Because we would still go on like really basic self-catering holidays and we weren't flying like first class and going to Ibiza for the summer. But I think I always thought I still think, you know, I'm the breadwinner and I've got kids to support. And yeah, I always just worry, not because money blows my skirt up I'm not motivated by money like you're not for the sake of it but I'm very motivated by the thought of not having enough yes I think that's definitely my dad while my I think my flaw is I don't care much about money which is very irresponsible so I will spend too much money on something really stupid and then six months later be broke (laughs) 
Do you think there's a misnomer? Um, people just assume, don't they? As soon as you're getting the telly, they assume you're loaded and they don't realise that, yeah, you'll get a decent amount of money. So Live at the Apollo is a great payer, fabulous, but it's one show, like that's it. And then, they, and then they've and then they got all that material, which you can't do on TV again. So if you amortise that out across your content, it is not well paid. And did you find there were people, in t- you said about women coming up to you wanting selfies and going, I don't find you attractive, but you must equally have had people saying, I find you very attractive. Oh. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. I had some poor, misguided fame hunters approach me and I was just like, oh, you poor, poor soul. You're looking for a footballer, not a comedian who, you know, you've seen on television. Oh, it was just, it's it's almost sad where you have to just say, you know, I'm not as rich as you think I am. <laughs> well, the good ones, Delisa, will be after your soul and your soul shines true. And that is uh, worth finding in some And actually, so, today yeah. I am meeting one of the good ones who literally I could not impress, even if I tried to, by buying her trinkets. <laughs> oh, is this an ongoing? Is this an ongoing? Yes, it's thing? a oh. close, close friend of mine uh, who there have been occasional romantic moments, but oh. we're back to friends. But literally, um, it's like um, the only way to get to if if I wrote her a story, you know, if I did something creatively, that would impress her. If I bought her something expensive. Could not care less. Well, if you don't want to go out with her, I'd like to. She sounds amazing. <laughs> She's amazing. Maybe if she this was, amazing. if I was writing the Hollywood script of uh, Delisa Chaponda's life, I would have you two uh, getting back together again at some point that you realise you're the one for each other. Well, I hope you are writing the script. Oh, I almost want to end the podcast on that note because that's very <laughs> lyrical. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick, Deliso, as your life-changing namaste motherfucking moment? Mine was actually um, watching a movie. I, I don't know if that's not deep enough, but essentially I was, I looked down on being a comedian when I started out as a comedian. People would ask me, are you a comedian? I'd be like, no, I'm a writer. And I was all about writing big, fat I wanted to be like African Dostoevsky. I wanted to write like, you know, some book of winning prize. And that was the path I was on. And I did comedy just because I was good at it, but I looked down on it and I was just like, oh, it's just knob gags. And then I went to watch Life is Beautiful, which if you haven't seen it, it's amazing. I love it. Amazing comedy, but it's set in a concentration camp. It's comedy. It's hilarious, but it's also about pain and about like hate and how we keep children innocent in the face of horrific things. And it blew my mind. And I really literally was like, humor can do that. You can do that with jokes. And I think that everything I write before and after that changed because I suddenly became more ambitious in subject matter. And I also, that was part of me saying that, oh, that's what I want to do. If I could do that, I would feel that I did something valuable. Well, as a namaste motherfucking moment, that is plenty deep enough. And what's your favourite joke? My favourite joke? Now, I don't know if it can be um, aired. Okay, I'll just tell it to you. It's a podcast, not the BBC. It'll be fine. Yeah, okay. So this is my favourite joke. So it's not my joke. It's a a, a joke, a pub joke. Someone, I always wonder, someone wrote these pub jokes. I wish we could give them credit. But I know they've anyway. become apocryphal, haven't they? We just don't know. Yes. Yeah, they're everybody's and nobody's. They're everybody's. So um, 
there are two people, there's a plane and it's about to, to crash, right? And so on the, on the speakers, a voice says, okay, we're going to have to throw some things out of the plane so that we don't crash, okay? So we've thrown out as many chairs as we can, we've thrown out as much, but now we have to throw out people. But we're, we don't want to discriminate, so we're just going to go alphabetically, okay? So first of all, would any Africans on the plane stand up? Nobody stands up. Okay. Would any black people stand up? Nobody stands up. Would any colored people stand up? Nobody stands up. Would any dark-skinned people stand up? Nobody stands up. And there's a little kid next to his dad. And he nudges his dad and he says, Dad, aren't we all of those things? And he says, no, 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 son. Today we're niggers. <laughs> now, not everybody who's listening can retell that joke, but that is my favorite joke because it's turning the insult into something of triumph. <laughs> it is, and I actually remember you having a joke about um, Bill Crosby and the N word, uh, and the oh, N -word, yeah. and the N word. Yes. Well, yeah, the N word that he uh, he was saying that he didn't understand or couldn't say was uh, couldn't understand was no. Yes, unbeknownst to us, the N-word he hated was no. There you go. I just trod all and over your punchline and you delivered it properly because it is your joke. But, but interestingly, I'll tell you one thing about that joke is it's not as funny anymore because when he was in prison. Yeah, when he's not incarcerated, we're not laughing. We're not laughing anymore because it was a hilarious joke. and But no one expected him to be let no, out. I know. So now I, I, I do it and I realize, oh, I can't do it anymore because we've he's out. Well, I will say that what's your favorite joke section of the podcast in nearly 100 episodes has never been this controversial. So I'm hoping this is going to make this the most famous podcast in the world. Fantastic. And if there was one bit of life advice, Delisa, you could give to anybody listening, what would it be? The one bit of life advice I would give is um, I, I'm actually stealing it from Desmond Tutu, who is one of my heroes. And uh, to paraphrase, he said something like, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And I think that's very much, there are a lot of things which are really overwhelming, a lot of tasks and a lot of things which are too big to do. And if you just, just one little bite at a time, you'll get there. <laughs> That was Deliso Chaponda. You can check out his tour dates and if you haven't already seen it, his Britain's Got Talent auditions. Links to all of that are in the show notes. And as usual, please remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast. Thank you, motherfuckers. So that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I will be talking to King of Soho, Alex Robson. I mean, I would say that 80% of it is hard work and 20% of it is fun. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.